electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, Apple's new frontier. As reports say, the company is on the road to producing a self-driving vehicle in the years ahead. That news coming is tech trying to stage a rebound today. We'll discuss Apple, the state of tech with our investment committee. And joining me for the hour are Stephanie Link, Josh Brown, Jim Labenthal, and John Najarian. Let's check where the markets are right now. NASDAQ did hit another new high earlier today, intraday. Went negative. Now it is trying to move back into positive territory. It's there by just shy of seven. Dow now down by just about 150. S&P's red. Russell is green. All right, John DeGerian, let's talk about this Apple news, okay? It's your biggest position, and that's why let's I want to come it. to you first. This is the report targeting 2024 to produce a passenger vehicle could include its own breakthrough battery technology. Um, it remains unclear who would assemble the Apple-branded car. But what do you just think about this on its face? Well, Scott, on its face, uh, you know, we've, we've chatted forever, uh, heard rumors about Apple perhaps getting into this space. But that key phrase that you just cited, which is their own unique or uh, breaking uh, new ground with this battery, that's something that people will pay attention to because you're no longer than just talking about an also-ran, whether it's an EV or whether it's self-driving vehicle. You're talking about a potential game changer in the battery space. And that's what everybody is focused on right now. Everybody from Lee and Neo and uh, uh, of course Tesla, as they develop better and better batteries. Uh, if Apple indeed has some sort of intellectual property and or some sort of um, a, a module that they've already been working on that could fit that moniker of a game changer, <coughs> it would change an awful lot of things, not just for Apple. Yeah. Everybody owns it on the desk today, which is a good thing. Um, so, Stephanie Link, what, what's your take? Does this, if you're an Apple investor, I mean, does this make sense? Well, I think parts of it make sense. So the EV total addressable market by 2027 is going to be $800 billion. Last year it was $165 billion. So there's clearly growth. Uh, but there's also a lot of competition. I would actually be surprised if they actually make a car because the profitability is so much less. But I think what they're maybe more after is really enhancing the driving experience using hardware, using software, using services. And, you know, they can do this because they have just brought in five core technologies in-house. So they brought in processing, they brought, they brought in batteries, they bought in, brought in camera, also sensors and displays. So they can package it up and then sell, sell it perhaps or partner up with an OE. But that's the way I would look at it, and I would think that would be better for profitability. And as a shareholder, that's what I'm interested in. Josh, you have a provocative thought here on what Apple should do. I'll let you say what you told our producers earlier about who you think should make this car. They should just buy Ford. 
I don't understand. Like, why wouldn't you? What Ford is a shell of its former self. They don't even make cars anymore. All they make is pickup trucks, which are a great business for them, and SUVs. They have a, 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 a dead or, or dying business in Europe, however you want to describe it. And really no mind share whatsoever in the 21st century as far as where autonomous is going, where electric is going. I understand they have electric cars coming, blah, blah, blah. So does everyone. That's table stakes now. This a Apple has uh, not made massive acquisitions historically. So I don't actually expect this to happen. But I think if somebody a little bit bolder... Uh, and more of a risk taker running Apple would recognize the opportunity. First of all, immediately retire all of Ford's debt. Second of all, renegotiate with the auto workers union and say, hey guys, we're actually about to make a ton of money. Let's make you guys not only hourly workers, but shareholders in this new venture. Like somebody bold could come along and do that. Apple has more cash than they could spend in a lifetime. So you're either going to do the cars, like really do them, or it's going to be another Apple TV where you're kind of sort of doing it. And now is the time. Like, make your decision. Because I'm going to tell you right now, Google and Waymo are not sitting back. Um, Uber is playing offense again. You already know that Tesla is not ever going to do anything other than play offense. So that's what I think should happen. I'm a shareholder of Apple, not a Ford. I recognize the stock might trade down if they actually did it. That's the alpha move. Okay. Very clear. All right. Jim Lamenthal, Farmer Jim, you're the car guy. Uh, so this makes sense to you. What about Josh's idea? Well, so look, certainly, of course, I woke up this morning and said, what about GM? I think there's there's one point that Josh kind of glossed over, but this is where it's like starting a land war in Asia, uh, which is the auto unions. I mean, th there are decades of experience of the auto unions wrecking companies and wrecking management. So, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe the auto unions would say, OK, look, we'll get paid in Apple stock. But again, it just feels like getting into a land war in Asia, not one that you win. I'd love it. And frankly, if they did it, I think you pick GM over Ford because they've got the battery technology all already there. The bigger point to me as an Apple shareholder is I could not care less about this news, okay, for so many reasons. First off, it's four years away. Um, that means there's a 10-year head start for guys like Elon Musk. I mean, the, the fields are already going to be overplowed by the so time what? they come to market. So what? Apple didn't invent the phone. So they just arguably made it better than the ones who did. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's going to happen. You think Elon Musk isn't doing the same thing? You think Waymo isn't doing the same thing? You think Neo isn't doing the same thing? I mean, the list goes on and on and on. This is the this Apple is kind MO, of, though, When right? you say that, it turns into... Wait, it's wait, wait. the Apple no, MO, yeah, right? Okay, Don't do fine, it first. But it's just the do same it better. Thing. What you're si Let me finish, Scott. Okay, this is the same thing as what's happened over the last few years, is anytime somebody says Amazon is coming into an industry, all of a sudden that industry gets sold off and falls apart. The truth of the matter is, if you look at Amazon and things like getting into healthcare, they really haven't done anything, okay? Just because Apple or Amazon comes into an industry doesn't mean that it's dead, particularly this industry where there are already so many disruptors. Whether it's Waymo, whether it's Tesla, whether it's Neo, I mean, the list goes on and on. This is not low-hanging fruit. But what's important, hey Jim, though, I'm an Apple hey shareholder. Jim, the car well, is not the business. Yeah, yeah. Jim, the car is not the business. The business is the know, services Scott, that you're selling I know, it's the to the operator of the car. It's, it's Josh, listen, first of all. Nobody cares about all, the car. I, make your point, Jim. I know. Jim, I know, I know hold I know. on. Hold on. Okay, Josh, make your point. Jim, let him make his point, and then Nobody reply, cares. and then we'll debate. Go ahead, Josh. I mentioned the unions. I don't have any good answers, Jim. I agree with you. It's probably the linchpin of whether or not you can get, you can actually do this right. 
Um, but Tesla's manufacturing cars in the United States, and they're making a lot of them. And things are, things are starting to change in the mindset of the traditional automakers. And I have to believe that trickles down to the people that are working in the GM zero emissions factories. There are now three of them. These were making filthy cars. They've been retrofitted to make clean cars. Um, and I think there's just been a shift in the mentality of fighting over what I could make per hour versus fighting over potentially having ownership of something that becomes a much larger business. Okay. I think you're seeing that in, in young people, and I doubt young auto workers or even middle-aged auto workers are immune to the allure of being a part of something that's growing fast. Um, so let, but let's just put that aside. The car doesn't matter. It's what you're selling to the operator of the car, the passenger of the car. Uh, that's really what the, what the game is about when you're talking about uh, the next 100 years of, of automotive, not the last 100 years. So from that standpoint, I don't think it'll be a big part of Apple's like revenue in the next 10 years. But I think it'll be important strategically to have that user um, in an Apple something. And they do a really good job, so, better than anyone, at melding software and hardware. Be because we, we love organic moments on this show. Phil LeBeau was listening to the conversation, <laughs> emailed me. So we have Phil uh, joining in. Phil, I'll let you, uh, I'll let you talk about go what on, you emailed ahead, me about. T what, tell him what I said in the email. Hey, Josh, what the subject line Phil, said? <laughs> Phil said it's nuts, Josh, <laughs> that there's no way that, that, that Apple's buying Ford. Why, it's Phil? not happening. Oh, I it's don't not think happening. they will. Well, it's not happening for a whole host of reasons. Well, look, yeah, what I don't think that's happening. I mean, I don't even no, know. And, and I don't and I don't think that Apple would want to do that. First of all, I don't think Bill Ford and the Ford family are sitting around saying, hey, let's sell to Apple. That's not happening anytime soon. That that company is going to be run by sure. the Ford family for the foreseeable future. Uh, and in terms of whether or not let's throw out the hypothetical. Not do they buy well. some other do they buy some other legacy automaker? There's enough capacity out there. If you're Apple, if you truly want to get into manufacturing, which I personally do not believe that's what the end game is here, if you want to get into manufacturing, there's enough capacity out there. You first go to a company like Magna. Take a look at Magna today. That's why the shares of Magna are up. They've had conversations in the past, according to reports, and they're likely going to be the first company that will work with Apple in terms of at least initial manufacturing. And then if Apple says, yeah, we want to go down this path further, Apple can find capacity. There's capacity all over the world. And you can find it if you want it, or you can just do a greenfield somewhere and say, well, this is what we're going to do. So just to get to this point of whether or not, and I hear this all the time from people, why doesn't Apple buy the XYZ, GM, Ford, Fiat Chrysler? Fiat Chrysler now, uh, the merger of Peugeot is going to be going through. Um, it, it just does not make sense. But Phil, the legacy costs are so great. What, what about the, uh, the, uh, the idea, um, you know, and, and some of the panelists, Jim Labenthal included, were making the point, these other companies um, already have a big head start, whether it's Tesla, Josh was yep. talking about Google and, and Waymo. Um, how much of a hindrance is that? I mean, you know more about this industry uh, right. in your pinky than I do on my whole hand. How hard is it going to be for Apple to try and get in this game? Um, to get into the game of whether or not let's make an autonomous vehicle, um, they can catch up relatively quickly. They can catch up. It's not like Tesla has such a huge head start that Apple could not eventually catch up to them. I can't put a time frame on it in terms of how long it would take. But in terms of the technology that they're developing, and by the way, the battery aspect of this is the most interesting thing in the world. Talked with Sam Jaffe at Karen yes. Energy Research. His exact words were, Apple is ha hiring battery technology researchers like crazy. 
and they've been doing it for a while. So that element of the story is perhaps the most interesting one here, and whether or not that applies to them ultimately building a car. But they can catch up, Scott. I have no doubt that they can catch up, especially when you're looking at this future technology, whether it's autonomous, whether it's a better development of an electric vehicle. Okay, Jim Labenthal. What's... What yeah, I just let me start by saying this. I like where Josh's head is. I mean, obviously, I'm on the other side of this from him, even as a GM shareholder. But I like that Josh is waking up, as all investors do, and saying, where's the pin action? Where's the derivative of this? And I think, you know, in the analogy of selling picks and shovels to people who are going out and mining for gold, I think you've got to look at, uh, you know, the, the Albemarle's of the world. You've got to look at Caterpillars of the world. Even though I trimmed some today, we'll get to that. But the companies that are going to be building the infrastructure, building the supply chains uh, that Apple will be using if, they, if they're going to actually do this. As an Apple shareholder, and I just want to bring it back to Apple for a second, yeah. I'm very happy with Apple, okay, but I don't care about the car business. Four years in this business, notwithstanding what Phil just said, is like a lifetime, okay? I'd much rather be in Apple because they're selling iPhones like hotcakes. The ecosystem is expanding. Yeah, maybe in five years that ecosystem really plays out in the cars, but it's already playing out there. I plug my iPhone uh, into my Cadillac, and, you know, everything on my iPhone comes up on the screen. It's, it's, it's a good system already. I'm just not in Apple for the cars. So, John and Jerry, and I mean, look, it's your biggest position, okay? So how do you counter what, mm -hmm. what Farmer Jim says that, I mean, I'll put the word in his mouth. He, it's irrelevant. That's basically what he's saying. Yeah. Well, but just as Phil said, though, if they have a breakthrough battery technology, Scott, which is what the releases have said, um, if that is indeed true, um, that is a game changer. That company alone, the battery side of that business alone, um, drives Apple to 160, 170 bucks at least. And Scott, we've had speculative buying for the last several days in Apple. They're buying huge amounts of the 139 calls that expire next week. They're buying the 143 calls that expire next week. So when I get all excited like this, it's because I see institutions, not individual investors. Individual investors trade 10 lots, 20 lots, things like that. When I see 500 lots, 1,000 lots going across our screen on the heat seeker, I'm saying, okay, somebody believes that they really might have that game changer, and that's why they're saying it could be 140-plus by the end of this year, just two weeks from now. Josh Brown? I would uh, take what the industry's experts, auto experts, have to say about whether or not Apple can, will, or should be heavily involved in this industry with a huge grain of salt. They missed the battery revolution. It was led by an outsider. It's led by a guy whose last thing that he built was a credit card processing software company. So that's number one. Number two, you really don't have to look far to find examples of Apple entering into areas where the incumbents mock them. What do, they, what do they think they know about making phones? The guy that ran Palm in 2007, when Apple first put out a press release that it's launching the iPhone, said there's no such thing as a toaster that makes coffee. So why would a computer company make phones? Steve Ballmer said they should shut the whole thing down before they go bankrupt. So that is now the most popular consumer technology, piece of consumer technology in the history of planet Earth. And it looked very unlikely to succeed and very improbable from the inside mm -hmm. of the phone industry. You know what was going on in 07? Research in Motion and Nokia 
were battling back and forth each month to be on the cover of Wired. That was the technology standard then. So calm down when you talk about what Apple can or can't or should or shouldn't do and look at the history of them doing pretty much whatever they want when they set their mind to it. All right, Phil, that's a perfect place to come back to you on as Josh is talking about with the industry. And maybe some of the naysayers out there are saying, forget about it. They're, you know, what do they have to play here? He brings up a great point. I can't argue with that. I cannot argue with that point. The only thing I would say is that immediately people will say, well, that's it. Apple's going to build a car, and we're all going to drive around in Apple cars. Look, the Apple ecosystem, I'm in it. I love it. I know millions of people who love it. People would love that aspect of an automobile. But we're a long ways from that happening to, from today to whether it's 2024 or further down the road. And I agree with what Stephanie said earlier. I, I don't see them ultimately building a car. I do think that they're going to be leveraging their technology and, and what they're doing, whether it's with batteries, whether it's, uh, you know, on the other aspects of, the, of their business, they're going to be leveraging that within the auto industry. Phil, I love that you were watching and reached out, and I'm glad you came to the camera. It's great to have your perspective on this uh, interesting story taking part in our debate as well. That's Phil LeBeau in Chicago. So, Steph, I'll come back to you as we wrap up this part of the conversation, okay? You have a bit of a split on the street today. Morgan Stanley says Apple has the key ingredients to be successful in this industry. Baird says iCar rumors resurface, potential game changer if accurate. The skeptics, City says they're skeptical that Apple's going to produce a car. We're very skeptical, they say, that they'll actually produce a car as the auto sector profitability is much lower. Evercore ISI says there's little reason for Apple to enter this space. All right, wrap it up, Steph. For, for an Apple investor, how do you look at this moving forward for a business and a company that is in need of growth engines into the future beyond the iPhone? I do not want them buying a car. The prof As I said before, the profitability is so much less. And I care about profits, especially on a company like Apple. I do think you, got, you have to look at it short term and then long term. Short term, this is not about a car or anything inside of a car. This is about 5G and the super cycle. This is about services, expanding margins. That's why I own it. This is also about, a, this is also about free cash flow being just enormous. The longer term, if they want to get involved in EV, the reason I cited the total addressable market is because there's such growth, $800 billion. That's a huge number in my mind. And so, of course, they're going to look to try to get involved. But I think they're going to stick to their core competency of putting technology inside the car and making the experience for the drivers and the passengers to actually benefit from that. So that's, that's my take longer term. I wouldn't be buying this stock today on the car news. Let's okay. just say that. I want to talk about what you guys are buying and selling uh, today. And Jim Labenthal, you alluded to it a moment ago uh, in passing, yeah. but let's, let's hit it for real now. You trimmed Caterpillar, you bought more Boeing. I want you to tell our viewers why you did that. Yeah. Well, okay, so let's focus on what's going on with Boeing. There's an announcement today that Alaska Airlines is upsizing uh, its 737 MAX order. This comes on the heels two weeks ago of the Ryanair order. Now, look, these planes are almost certainly selling for peanuts, but that's not the point. As you go into 2021, you're going to hear more and more about the inventory of these 737 MAXs declining. At the same time that the economy globally is recovering, 
um, and people start flying again, this all inures to Boeing's benefit. Now, if I'm adding to Boeing, I got to figure out how I want to fund that. Caterpillar has done fabulously. I, I, give, I give it no knocks other than there's a lot of good things priced into Caterpillar. I'm still retaining my shares. Uh, you know, I still have a position in it. So what I was saying about supply uh, chain onshoring or maybe an infrastructure bill next year, I'll play that with the remaining position in CAT. That said, if CAT goes above 190, I may have to trim it some more. Okay, the Linkster owns both, right? Steph, you own, Bo you own CAT, you own Boeing. Hmm. Yep. Yep. Uh, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't touch either of them. In fact, uh, I think I've, I mentioned just a couple weeks ago, I added to my Boeing position uh, when they got approval for the 737 MAX. Um, I think the, the big story about Boeing is orders translates into free cash flow and for, for Boeing. And for this stock to really work and to go much higher, you have to believe that these orders are going to start coming in. And I do believe they will. And in the meantime, they've got $25 billion in liquidity. So I feel pretty good about that one. Caterpillar, I wouldn't, I wouldn't touch it. Not with copper uh, up 75% since March. Not with aluminum up 40% since March. Not with steel up 65% since March. These, these moves are going to benefit Caterpillar in a big, big way. And their balance sheet has been really improved dramatically. Great CFO, good CEO too, but great CFO really managing um, all, of the, uh, all of the moving parts. All right, Jim. Steph says bad move. You're trimming cat. Okay, no, well, yeah, but <laughs> she did. Listen, Steph and, she I, did. Steph and I do a lot of things in sync. And what Steph, what Steph knows um, is that I have some stocks that she doesn't have, which is fine. But if you look at the Cleveland Cliffs on iron ore, everything she's saying about copper is being felt in the iron ore industry. If you talk about just cyclicals in general, look at the Greenbrier, which takes, you know, bends metal into the shape of rail cars. I've got so much cyclical and industrial exposure that for me to add to Boeing without reducing it somewhere else is a little okay. bit foolish. Okay. Okay. And so this is classic buy, buy low and sell high. Let me throw up, throw up guys in the back, if you could please, uh, Cliffs again, because I saw something on that chart that made me want to come back to you with a bit of a debate point. I think I saw, and I did, that stock is up 125% in three months. Why not trim that back? <laughs> yes. Right? Why not trim that one back and put that money into yeah, Boeing rather than question. sell cat? Yeah, it's a good question. The short answer is I think Cleveland Cliffs is going a lot higher than Cat will. But let's let's address your point because Cleveland Cliffs is up 125%. I would expect a correction at any point in the next three months. If you know Lorenzo Goncalves, the CEO, I can tell you he's not playing for $14 a share. He's playing for $20, $25 a share. I know what his strategy is. His business plan is exquisite. I'm going to stick it out and not try to time any correction by coming in and out there. But, I mean, even a stock that's up 125% in three months, that doesn't make you a little nervous. You're still all in. Yeah, it does make me nervous. It does make me nervous. And you know what? This is a business that is supposed to make you nervous. Again, I'll say it. I think this is going to be above 20 in a year, and I don't want to miss out on that by trying to time a correction that could happen at any point in time. Okay. Josh Brown, uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, maybe it was a week ago, we talked about Schlumberger, which you called, I, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but I'm going to be pretty close, the worst trade or investment that I think I've ever made, the worst stock I've ever owned. I think you, you said something to that effect. So the now worst you, stock I've ever owned. Worst stock. I've made worst, I've made worst trades. Okay. <laughs> I knew I was in the ballpark somewhere. It's, you, you sold well, SLB. <laughs> you sold SLB. Yeah, I'm out. And you bought Merck. Yeah, Talk peace. 
Talk I'm even me. having the t- I'm even having the SLB tattoo removed. Um, <laughs> this is the listen, everyone. Everyone, by the way, this is what what I've done here is what investors all over America are doing. I know it sounds shocking. There aren't a lot of losses that you can take in in portfolios as an investor. We do tax loss harvesting throughout the course of the year. Um, the way that we work with high net worth households and uh, the energy sector has been a pretty reliable place to find those losses to offset massive gains in almost every other sector. Um, so, so I think that that's, that's just like the way that portfolio management should be done. Let's talk about Merck. Um, I haven't had a single stock position in a pharma name in a very long time. I, I look at Merck as the optimal pharmaceutical giant to play the reopening. Two out of every three of Merck's uh, medications require an in-person doctor's office visit to administer. So if you look at all the large cap pharma, and I like a lot of them, by the way, this is the one that has the most potential upside in the reopening trade, which I believe is the dominant theme of the first quarter of 2021, unless this new strain in the UK wipes us all out, in which case doesn't matter what I own. Merck's a 3% dividend yield. Warren Buffett is uh, beginning to accumulate, in my experience, watching Berkshire Hathaway for 20-something years. I've never seen him take a small position and then just stop there. Usually it's the beginning of a larger position, so let's, ha- let's hope he continues to buy it. This is a company that's got the flexibility to continue to make acquisitions. They just sold their stake in Moderna at the beginning of December. That stock went up like 600% this year. I view that as a wise sale. I'm not sure that there's that much more left to go um, in that trade. So. Uh, I like what's going on there. The cancer franchise is dominant. I like the, the total return aspect of it. And I think above 85, it's a technical breakout, which it's a ways from here, but that's the next catalyst. Steph, I, I come to you for, for a word because you, you just bought Slumbers Day, didn't you? Yeah, I was actually just about to, to, to mention that. Um, I did just buy it. I've owned it in the past. I think she bought mine. I, 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 uh... Yeah, sold to you <laughs> from Josh Brown. And I totally understand Josh. And I totally understand Josh. I really do. I get it. Take the loss, move on, um, and you know, clear your head, you if me. you will. But I think that this is the number. This is the number one company in the industry. They have the best margins, and I think they're going higher. And they have this digital franchise that's only 13% of their total revenues that is going to double over the next couple of years, which I think will also help on the margin side. So with oil prices kind of stabilizing, that's all I need for, the, for this company, I think, to do better. And it's, it's still down double digits on the year and, it, and, and kind of washed out, in my hey. opinion. Hey, Steph. I think uh, one of the biggest trends, one of the biggest trends in both active and passive management is virtually all of the new flows coming into stocks are now going into portfolios, funds, strategies that are managed to an ESG mandate. I I happen to think that Mm -hmm. that's one of the big reasons why energy companies like Schlumberger, even well-managed ones like Schlumberger, really are maybe permanently at a disadvantage to other sectors of the stock market. They just aren't going to get the same share of dollars coming in because of how many people are excluding this sector. Now, that could be a huge opportunity for someone that says, I care about money, not ESG, um, so I will stipulate that. But don't you think that just permanently depresses the multiples for these stocks um, for, for the foreseeable future? Or do I have that wrong? 
No, I mean, I think that you're, you're, you have it right. I do think there are opportunities, especially for someone like Schlumberger, which I would argue in a couple of years, we might even call it a technology company. In fact, some people call it that right now. On the flip side, I think people are all loaded up on Tesla because of ESG. So I'm just trying to figure out like where there are extremes. And I think with Schlumberger, if I can get the number one company with the number one management, with a good balance sheet and a strategy to grow, I'm going to take that. I'm going to take that, especially at these valuations, and especially because I think you're at the trough in terms of their earnings and earnings power. So this is a company-specific thing, but Josh, I get what you're saying on ESG, and I, and I don't dispute it. All right, guys, great, great conversations. I love the, uh, love the debate about Apple, what it should do, who maybe it should buy, and then, of course, now this to end our first segment of the show. Coming up, the Bitcoin trade back in a big way this year, recently hitting above 24,000. Skybridge is Anthony Scaramucci with us next. He's getting into that game with a new fund. He'll join us next to talk about it. Let's take on the market as well. We're back with the Mooch next. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit ODFL.com to learn more. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Sue Herrera. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. White House officials this morning discussed the possibility of a federal requirement that passengers coming from the U.K. get COVID screenings. But they decided not to take any action right now. That's according to Reuters. Earlier, New York's governor said he had deals with three carriers to test passengers before boarding flights to the state amid concerns about a highly infectious mutant strain of the coronavirus identified in southern England. The second U.S. authorized COVID vaccine from Moderna is being distributed throughout the country. Here's what it looked like as the shipment arrived at the Cox Medical Center in Springfield, Missouri. And White House advisor Jared Kushner arriving today in Morocco on the first direct flight from Israel after the two nations agreed earlier this month to establish full diplomatic relations. You are up to date. That's the news update, Scott. Back to you. All right, Sue. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Well, you can add Anthony Scaramucci's Skybridge Capital to those looking to hit it big in Bitcoin. Skybridge launching a new fund tailored to the cryptocurrency. Anthony joining us now. It's good to see you. Welcome back. Hi. It's great to be back, Scott. Thanks for putting my high school picture up uh, before the commercial break. I yeah. appreciate it. My family appreciates it. Your, your, hair, your hair was a little big, but uh, we'll... we'll we won't go there for right now. We'll talk about that some other time. Why Bitcoin? I mean, is it obvious it's just on fire lately? So why not? Well, I think it caught it caught fire. Listen, we would have loved to have deployed the fund three or four months ago. I think it caught fire, but we're still in very, very early innings, Scott. Uh, and over the last two years of doing research on Bitcoin, getting comfortable with Bitcoin, of course, doing a ton of salt talks with people like Michael Saylor, uh, it became clear to us that we needed to create a client-friendly product, uh, something with a $50,000 minimum that the mass affluent could access or RIAs that were close to could access. Uh, and it's a cheaper offering than the rest. It's 75 basis points. Uh, it's in an LP structure, which makes it easier for RIAs. And until, frankly, there's an ETF or there's a customer account somewhere where people can hold Bitcoin, uh, this will be a way for us to democratize Bitcoin like we did the hedge fund industry a decade ago. So 
Uh, four months in the making, Scott. Uh, it started trading today with $25 million of the firm's capital. Uh, we're going to go live on January 4th for outside investors. And uh, we're super excited. And, and you either have to accept that Bitcoin is a store of value or not. There are still skeptics out there. Uh, and that's why I think we're in the first inning. But after doing the research that we've done, we believe it is. And given the monetary supply and the global central banking coordination right now, this will be a very strong asset class over the next decade. And you don't feel, I mean, I know you said you wish you would have done it four months earlier. You don't feel like this is a little late, right? I mean, you know, I'm sure there's somebody out there who's watching this and says, okay, you know, now that Skybridge is launching this or, or anybody launching it now, maybe that's the top, that it's a little late after it's rallied as far as it's come. Or we could be at the precursor of an avalanche of institutional investors heading in, not wanting to put it on their balance sheets in 2020, uh, but orders indicating and orders building up uh, from a large swath of institutions for the first quarter of 2021. I think that's the more likely scenario. But listen, this is something that has crashed upwards in the last two and a half to three weeks. Not to say that there won't be volatility. Uh, we have a three-month holding period on this. We're really trying to target our investors to think about this long term. Don't trade it. Uh, there's an expression called HODL. Most people in the Bitcoin community know what that means. It just basically means buy and hold it. Uh, this is an asset that could go up 2 or 3x from here, in our opinion. And if you look at Bitcoin over the last decade, Scott, you could put a one penny in Bitcoin, 99 cents in cash, it would have beaten every other asset class, specifically the S&P 500. So, so for us, I don't think it's late. If anything, it's the first inning. You're about to see that wave of early adoption by the institutional community. I'd like to get our investors involved before that goes into full throttle. Well, on that note, um, you know, look, you, frankly, your optimism is matched by some, some pretty interesting data. Fidelity, which I, I just got my hands on this Fidelity survey, uh, the results were released on, on June 9th, now obviously back in the summer, but of a survey of almost 800 institutional investors across the U.S. and Europe, 36% say they're currently investing in digital assets, Anthony, and 6 of 10 believe that digital assets have a place in their investment portfolio. Now, obviously, Bitcoin was trading at a different point in June than it is now, but your point is well taken about the growth opportunity that you see existing. Yeah, and Fidelity will be our back office for this. Again, this is a buy on Bitcoin. The net asset value of the fund will be the book value of Bitcoin. Uh, Fidelity will be our storage mechanism. Uh, we got top flight accountants like Ernst & Young overseeing the product. Uh, and so, listen, I think Fidelity is going to be right about this, Scott. You know, Stan Druckenmiller, as you know, has spoken very favorably about it. Paul Tudor Jones, uh, the Winklevoss uh, brothers, uh, Michael Saylor, who I'm developing a very close relationship with over the last three or four months, has put over a billion dollars in Bitcoin through MicroStrategy. Uh, I would encourage people to look at that salt talk that him and I did about a month ago. And basically he suggests, which I believe is true, anytime you see a structure get to a market capitalization of $100 billion, uh, and in Bitcoin's case, 6,500 attacks from other types of digital currencies uh, left it the top dog, if you will, in the digital currency space. Uh, and we've learned that from the tech giants. Once you get to that $100 billion number, uh, it sort of goes up exponentially from there. Uh, and it's for those reasons and many other reasons that we're excited to launch the fund. 
uh, and we're looking to take in new money on January 4th. John Nigerian, you're my resident Bitcoin expert. One in? <laughs> um, yeah, love it, Scott. I mean, uh, we've, we've been teaching uh, cryptocurrency trading over at Market Rebellion. We're a big investor in a brokerage called Voyager, uh, Canadian-based, but uh, that one's up like, I think, 20x this year. The brokerage, Scott, is up that much. I mean, that's how massive uh, the appeal is for individuals to get in here. We're launching a fund uh, in 2021 that won't be like Anthony's. It'll be a, a private fund, a hedge fund, if you will, Scott. But I mean, uh, the paperwork's already there. We're very excited about the space. Anthony and I have talked a number of occasions about trying to get a Bitcoin fund up and going between us. But I applaud him for getting this one up here, Anthony. So. Uh, there will be a lot of companies. Scott. And let me ask this too, Anthony, before you answer that, I'm, I'm just curious well, th if, if, thanks, I, if I was going to bring Josh Brown in. How do you feel about digital currencies, Josh, and Bitcoin as investment opportunities for the types of people that your firm advises? Well, I think that, look, there's an opportunity is an opportunity for sure. I just don't know if it's more on the trading side as opposed to the store value side. And I don't think anyone really definitively can answer that question until a lot more time elapses. So the way that we have been about digital currencies is telling clients to do it away from us. No RIA in America uh, wants to be the first test case um, when Bitcoin gets cut in half and high net worth investors sue them for being negligent or, or whatever. So those... Those court cases will be more important, actually, than the launch of the ETF. So there are some smaller firms that are doing wealth management that are going to be the pioneers that get the arrows in their back. And I wish them well, and somebody has to do it. It's not going to be us. So we are not discouraging people from Bitcoin. We just don't want to be at the forefront uh, of, of taking that risk. It doesn't make sense for us. It's not necessary. We don't have tons of clients asking us our advice on that. A lot of them are very savvy. They work in technology. They've already figured out what they want to do. My question for Anthony is, why is a hedge fund structure superior from uh, the current standard, which is, uh, seems to be the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, which we know trades at a big premium to its NAV, but it's pretty easy for people to get exposure that way, at least easier for non-sophisticated people who don't want to trade futures. Why is your structure superior to that? Well, listen, I don't want to knock uh, Grayscale. You know, we, we have a full node at Skybridge, technological node for Bitcoin. Grayscale has been one of the big pioneers. I'm not here to knock them. And just looking at pricing, however, they're at 2%. Scott will be at 75 basis points. You mentioned the premium. Uh, our partnership will trade at its net asset value. And so sometimes Grayscale gets as high as a 30% premium to where the underlying currency is trading. Right. And so we're really trying to avoid that for clients. And just one point on the high net worth space, which I have been in for the last 33 years, uh, I want clients to stay wealthy. There's no question about that. I want them to be defensive. Uh, and I don't think a half a percent to a 2% exposure to Bitcoin will necessarily be the disruptor for them. But if we're right about direction, uh, it could move uh, the scale for them on the actuarial map of getting a higher return with lower risk. Now, you're, you're correct in saying that it's going to be volatile. I expect it to be volatile. 
And so we're encouraging investors to start small. Uh, again, 25 million of our own capital is in that fund, so we're going to be eating our own cooking uh, and watching it very carefully. But just having that lower price point and it not trading to a premium, I think will be compelling to people uh, for a product like ours. Appreciate you sharing this news That's first a big with us. Dip. 75 versus two is a big difference. I agree. Anthony, thank you. Happy holidays hey, to you and your family. Thanks, Scott. You too. We'll, we'll talk to you soon. God bless. All right. That's Anthony Scaramucci. And speaking of cryptocurrencies, the CEO of Ripple, Brad Garlinghouse, is going to be on Power Lunch today at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. Straight ahead, the high-flying stock Bernstein is calling the New Year's resolution stock to own in 2021. It's already surged over 75% this year, so we'll debate it next. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. So what is this big call we talked about before the break? Rahel Solomon has the answer for us. I Hi, sure Rahel. do. Hi, Scott. So, yes, if you are still working on resolutions and need a resolution stock, well, Bernstein suggests Uber as the one to own in 2021. It expects positive adjusted EBITDA by the third quarter of 2021. Scott, that is in line with comments made on our air by Uber CEO back in November that he also expects they'll reach profitability in 2021. Bernstein sees positive momentum with the vaccine, regulation and growth of delivery. Uber, by the way, also up almost 80 percent year to date, as you mentioned. And Bank of America says that they're bullish on what they're calling the most unloved mega cap in the S&P, AT&T. The firm maintaining its buy rating with a price target of 36 bucks per share. B of A notes that AT&T has been good at paying down its debt, refinancing at lower rates. And while they did not increase the dividend for the first time in 30 years, they did maintain it operationally. Analysts like Synergies being created by Warner Media and its HBO Max strategy. Well, appreciate it very much. Thank you very much. I don't have any ownership on the desk of AT&T. Jim and Josh, you own Verizon, but I want to go Uber. The New Year's resolution stock to own in 2021, that could have been written by Josh Brown, right? Yeah, this stock's going higher. This was one of the toughest um, average downs I did in the March-April period, but uh, it's one of the ones that rewarded me the most. Um, And I think when we get into 2021, what people will be thinking about is 2022 numbers because that's just the way these stocks trade. If you think Uber 
uh, in 21 is going to do 18 billion in revenue and then 23 billion plus in 2022, which is Wall Street's consensus, then it's one of the cheapest of the large cap technology growth companies, like by far at a $96 billion uh, market cap. It's like four, t- four times 22 revenue. You got companies much bigger in terms of market cap trading at 20 and 30 uh, times sales. So I know we're, we're grading on a curve, but um, I think this stock can absolutely work in the reopening. They needed the vaccine. Now we're getting it. All right. John's got calls there, too. And speaking of John, his latest unusual activity trades coming up next right here on The Half. Okay, Dr. J, you're up. What you got? I've got two January expiration stocks, Scott. Stephanie will love the first one because it is General Electric. They're buying the 1150 calls, Steph, in GE. I bought those. They're only 20 cents. Why not? Uh, Second one, take a look at Canadian Solar, CSIQ. They're buying the double nickel, the 55 calls with the stock sub 50. Now that stock is starting to run. I intend on holding both these positions for probably three weeks. Okay. Boy, Steph, GE. Man. All right. We'll take, yeah. we'll take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll take. We, oh, go ahead. Real quick, Steph, real quick. Send us to break. Send us to break. No, no. I was just saying I'll take anything. I'll take anything at this point. <laughs> so I'm happy to hear it. All right. Now just say we'll be right back. We'll be right back. There you go. <laughs> All right, it's time for the futures outlook now. Watching the NASDAQ 100 today. NASDAQ hitting a new intraday high earlier. Let's bring in Jeff Kilberg of KKM Financials. Good to see you. <laughs> hey, Judge, I'm having a hard time hearing you now, but I'm going to go with it here because it looks well, like the NASDAQ 100 continues to attract We can assets. see, Jeff, but obviously and as Fed Chairman Powell we can't has hear, The fact that every time it pulls back, I want to be a buyer of the E-mini NASDAQ 100. I want to be a buyer here right here at 12,650. We're looking for a 250 handle higher move. That would be a new all-time high, Judge, at 12,900. But I'm being mindful, and I want to look for a stop just 125 handles lower at 12,525. But remember, this is a safe haven asset, and you're going to continue to see assets flow into the marketplace from now until New Year's Eve. Apparently, everybody could hear you but me. I thought maybe it had something to do with my comment to you about your crimson jacket. Ahead of the big game. Uh, yes. Look, <laughs> my vote will be for Trevor Lawrence. He deserves the Heisman. But look, in Ireland, they say three's a charm. We're going to beat Alabama. We're going to okay. get another opportunity to play Trevor Lawrence and Clemson. All right. We see the helmet over your shoulder. We know where your loyalties lie. Jeff Kilberg, thank you. Happy holidays. All right. You as well and to your family, too. Final trades are next. Okay. Final trades. Farmer Jim, you're up first. Oh, going back to Apple, because in addition to everything else, the technicals are fabulous here. It's breaking out of a three-month consolidation. Okay, good stuff. Brings it full circle for us, too. Steph, what do you have for us? Then Josh, then John. The match group, it's a spin from IAC and the total addressable market, 600 million global online singles out there. So there's market share to be had. Okay, Josh, name, then Jim. I mean, then uh, John. J.P. Morgan's going higher. Cody, the stock has nearly tripled since the September low, Scott. Good stuff, guys. All right, sorry. Good stuff. Thank you. The exchange starts right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. 
With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash.